2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Stocks are trying to rebound from yesterday's huge sell-off, but we're well off the highs right now. The CDC just saying that more mitigation efforts like what we saw in March to fight COVID may be needed again if cases go up dramatically. We'll have the very latest. Plus, the corporate debt pile is growing fast and furious and investors are piling into all of it. But we'll explore if that will be a headwind to future economic growth and a rare and exclusive interview with private equity titan Henry Kravis of KKR. Don Peebles told us his firm is getting it right when it comes to diversity, what they're doing, and what other firms can learn from it coming up. We do begin with today's markets, though. Bob Bassani here with the very latest for us. Bob?
3: We're up, uh, but Kelly, but well off of the highs. Five to one advancing to declining stocks. No particular reason for the rally, but remember, we're still down about 5% on the S&P for the week. We're being led... Uh, by financial stocks, I just want to show you some of these bank stocks here. They're the leaders here, really across the board. Banks are up, insurance companies are up, but this inverted V I keep talking about. You see, Citigroup there goes from forty-eight. 48- to $60, all the way back into the high 40s, now $51. But it's kind of an inverted V. Same with a lot of these energy stocks. If you take a look, energy is the worst performer on the week. And again, these inverted Vs. So Marathon was $6 a few days ago. It went to $9, and then it goes back to $6. Even today, it's rallying, but it's still back to $6. That's an inverted V here. Industrials ahead. Airlines are doing a little bit better today. Uh, Group is still generally sharply lower on the week here. United Airlines, another example, 30 to 50 in three days, and then back down. Into the low 30s, as you can see, but the airlines are rallying. Boeing's having a still up on the week. General Electric, same thing. It was six, went to nine, then went back down to six again, rallying here uh, at seven dollars. Again, inverted Vs that you're seeing. Tech's a little bit ahead today. Mega, ha- mega cap is kind of mixed, as you see here. Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, they're outperforming. Amazon's down. In fact, Amazon uh, up a little bit for the week. Facebook and Google, though, I, now, I know are down so far. The week. So, still a mixed picture, but five to one advancing to declining stocks. Guys, back to you.
2: Bob, what do you make of the action so far today? You know, we go into the back half of the trading session. We've seen the Dow up over 800 points, then come down almost to only about a 200 point gain. We're climbing back up. Then we get these CDC headlines.
3: Yeah. So, uh, the question for today is do you buy the dip or not? The reason buy the dip looks kind of attractive is it worked in the past. We had down percent, 6 percent. Very rare. I mean, we had, what, four of them in March where we were down 5 percent. Four days. The last one was, I think, March 18th, before the bottom of March 23rd. Every time at that point, buying would have not been a bad idea. We're above every point where we dropped 5 percent uh, back in March, those four periods. So the buy the dip is still there. That mentality. We'll see if that works in the longer term, though. Yeah.
2: That's always the question. Bob, we appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Bob Bassani with the latest there. Well, it's been an absolute borrowing binge for corporate America this year. There was a trillion dollars worth of investment grade corporate debt sales in the first 149 days. That's a new milestone. And that's just investment grade. Are we setting ourselves up for a very slow economic recovery because of this? For more, I'm joined by Jason Trenner, chairman and CEO of Strategis, and Chris Williams, who is chairman at Siebert, Williams and Shank. And it's great to have you both here. Chris, I'm going to start with you because you're the corporate debt expert. You know, in in a way, it's a a good sign that the markets are functioning, that all these debt sales are going off. But should we be worried that a hangover is coming?
4: Well, I think you're right. It is is very positive that the bond market is functioning as well as it has and that investor demand is as uh, robust as it has been. What I will say is that many of the companies that have accessed the market have done so simply as a preemptive measure. Uh, Obviously, there's a great deal of uncertainty that has been brought on by the COVID health crisis, which led to the uh, economic downturn. And as a result, the worst thing any company can find itself, the worst situation it could find itself, is in a case where it is uh, short of cash and short of liquidity. So many of these companies have taken the preemptive step of making sure that they have sufficient liquidity, which, given they have strong balance sheets and strong performance. They can repay at, at some point in the future, but it's better to have it uh, now in the event of of uh, further negative performance right. in the market.
2: And I take your point. And if these were lines of credit, I would say, you know, maybe that's a good sign. Because if we added up the lines of credit, you know, it might sound like a big number, but no one uses them. No problem. But it's still debt, Chris. So my question is, yeah. these companies are going to have to pay it down. And broadly speaking, do all of us here watching the, the markets and the recovery have to think that every dollar a company earns in the future, you know, more of it has to go to paying down debt than to paying people, investing to grow, that sort of thing?
4: That's a very fair point. The key is, as we know, rates are at extraordinarily low levels. In fact, it is the most inexpensive form of financing that the company can obtain right now. And again, I will go back to this is not something that was done recklessly by companies. I think it is out of conservatism that they accessed the market, made sure that each of them had sufficient liquidity Mm -hmm. to uh, carry them through any significant downturns. In fact, we've seen companies that have been in some of the sectors that were hardest hit, and but yet they were able to access the bond market and really receive some pretty significant investor demand. And that's critical because if you're a shareholder in that company, you don't want to see a good company. Uh, have issues simply because of a short-term liquidity problem.
2: Absolutely. And I know Delta is one of the more recent examples of that. It raised another billion dollars or so. Uh, Jason, I'll turn to you on that note to kind of give us your thoughts on how you think this recovery is shaping up. You know, in, in some ways, it's not so much about the V shape of the rebound that we might see this year. It's, you know, what are we looking at when we start to look one, two, three, four years out?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think, Kelly, the hard part is that for the next couple of months, and, and we've been saying this for a while, everything is going to look like a V, uh, and that's simply because of a base effect. And, and, you know, if you have load factors at airlines down 95%, for instance, it, it's, it's not hard for everything to kind of look like a V, restaurant reservations, any sort of cyclical uh, company that's been shut down. I think it's really what happens after the third quarter that's more – uh, as you point out, is 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 a harder question, and we're uh, we're using the idea of a square root shape recovery for lack of a better uh, symbol. But you know, down a lot, up some, but then I think a slower growth um, trajectory uh, after that. I, I think the recession likely is over uh, in terms of the idea that the, um, we're going to continue to expand the economy from here. But I do think it's going to take quite some time to get back to the level. Of economic activity and earnings uh, that we sure. have seen in 2019.
2: Jason, one question, especially since you're here with, uh, you know, you guys are very plugged into D.C. as well. There's so much back and forth lately about uh, the poll numbers and what they say about Trump's re-election odds falling or the odds of you know, Democrats are taking the Senate. I mean, what is your latest thinking about what we're looking at come november and any market implications from that
5: well the, f- the first thing i would say my own personal opinion is that um i watched the betting odds uh, more than i watched the polls and, and i and i i think that's that that would be true for any candidate uh because i think polling has gotten worse there are a variety of reasons for that part of its technology getting people on the phone and so on um, i think particularly with donald trump I think he he blows up polls uh, because <laughs> he's obviously someone that uh, not not everyone who's going to vote for him is necessarily going to admit. It. So the, the the betting odds, though, have changed and they've moved in favor of, of Vice President Biden slightly. I would say he's a slight favorite over uh, over Donald Trump. I think, um, you know, my own opinion, I, I don't want to offend anyone's politics, uh, but just from a very parochial point of view of the stock market, Um, Certainly a democratic sweep, it's hard hard to view that as a particularly good development for financial assets, in in my estimation. And that's largely because um, I think there'll be a lot of moves made to dismantle the corporate tax cuts that were put into place at the end of 2017. Mm -hmm. I think given the weakness of the economy, that would be very dangerous.
2: And on that note, Chris, just to circle back to you, that has played into some discussions about the IPO market this year and even some of the debt offerings, this idea that maybe right now is as good as it gets. What would you, do you think there's maybe some merit to that idea in terms of how how well the markets are doing?
4: The markets are extraordinarily healthy right now. And I think it could be that rates will not get significantly lower. And we've seen that even multi-billion dollar financings, they are oversubscribed significantly by multiple times. And in addition, even the pricing, the spread over treasuries has continued to remain very strong, often tightening during the process of uh, which we market the, the transactions. So the market has shown very strong uh, demand for a broad range of issuances of all types of credit qualities
2: and you take that as a good sign of something that can last or as a kind of enjoy it while it's here moment
4: nothing lasts forever and there is a limit to how much that any market can sustain the volume that can be sustained and it's healthy but uh for now because of the amount of money and inflows in mutual funds and managed by many of the fixed income investment managers, there is a great deal of cash to be invested. And in fact, because there is also a real interest in gaining incremental yield, even credits that might be slightly lower rated or those that have uh, experienced some of the most impact as a result of the government shutdown have still been able to, yeah. uh, to to fund themselves on the expectation that when we get through this, they will go back to being the healthy companies that they were before.
2: Absolutely. Great conversation with both of you guys. Thank you, Chris Williams and Thanks. Jason Trenner, talking about these markets and the recovery. Thanks, Meanwhile, we've had some good news on the housing front with mortgage forbearance numbers falling for the second straight week. Diana Olick has those details. Diana?
0: Yeah, Kelly, the numbers are definitely going in the right direction. There are now 4.66 million borrowers in government or private sector forbearance programs, or 8.8% of all active mortgages. That's according to Black Knight, a mortgage data provider. Now, these programs allow borrowers to delay their monthly payments for at least three months and as long as a year. But take a look at the change. In the first weeks of April, More than a million borrowers a week were requesting bailouts. Now, the totals are reversing. Down 77,000 in the past week and down 112,000 since the peak in late May. Loans backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac saw the greatest decline in volume, but all investor classes saw reductions as well. Now, while borrowers do get relief, mortgage servicers still have to advance those payments to bondholders for a maximum of four months. And at today's levels, servicers of Fannie and Freddie loans will need to pay $8.8 billion in advances over that
2: four-month period. Kelly. Diana, real quick, is there anything to be said for if somebody gets into trouble later on this year, early next year, and then wants to go into forbearance? Was this kind of a one-time option? No, it's still available
0: to anybody who wants to
2: ask for it now.
0: It's still active. So I don't know how much past the next year it's going to go. They haven't said. But
2: if you get into trouble this month or next month, you still can apply for forbearance. Interesting. So it does give us a sense in real time, you know, how these borrowers are doing. Diana, thanks very much. Diane Olick with some better news on that front. Coming up, oil is on pace for its first negative week in seven, and the energy sector is down 13% in the past five days. Is this the perfect buying opportunity? One market watcher says yes, that oil could be headed to 50 he'll explain. Plus, a rare interview with KKR co-CEO Henry Kravis, his take on the state of private equity, their most recent investments, and his push to bring diversity into the boardroom. As we head to break, take a look at the banks seeing a comeback after their sharp two-day sell-off, but it's not a huge one. Wells Fargo, Citigroup up 4 to 6%, Morgan Stanley up less than 3%. Overall, the financials up a little less than 2%. Stay with us. Much more on today's Rally Ahead.
4: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise, our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back. A glimmer of good news for the airlines today. As more travelers are taking to the skies, Phil LeBeau has the numbers for us. Phil?
7: Kelly, first time since mid-April that we have seen more than 500,000 people flying with the airlines in one day. That happened yesterday. It hit 502,000. That is the first time since mid-March we've been at that level in terms of passenger travel in this country. But don't get too excited. It's still down 82%, 82% compared to where it was in terms of passenger levels a year ago. Nonetheless, as you were showing, and we're going to show you right here, airline stocks are off to the races again today. The gains anywhere between 7 and 15% relative to... the previous day, and that's a nice gain that they're showing there, but keep in mind, this has been a wild week for the airlines. Monday they had a further pop, which capped a three-week, four-week rise of anywhere between 50 and 60 percent, sometimes 100 percent. Then it fell off in the middle of this week, and now what you're seeing is the rebound coming back today. One specific stock we want to point out to you, Delta Airlines. The company finished a uh, debt offering that it uh, un- unveiled on Wednesday, finished it today, raised $1.25 billion. Kelly, we will see more of this in the future. Airlines continuing to raise cash because they are still burning through it at an excessive rate.
2: Yeah, we are just talking about that, and the shares are up 9%. The airline index up 9% today, too. That's a big move. Phil, we appreciate it. Thanks very much, Phil LeBeau, with the very latest there. We've seen big corrections in cyclical sectors this week, especially banks and energy. The energy sector is the worst performer, and oil is down for the first time in seven weeks. My next guest says it's a buying opportunity. Joining me is Jerry Castellini, the chief investment officer at Castle Arc Management. Jerry, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you. So Thank what, you. what tantalizes you about energy?
8: Well, at three different levels. First of all, we've been playing this binary game. Are we cyclical? Are we secular? Uh, does the market need some instant gratification uh, from medical breakthrough to get us through? Or is this really a secular opportunity to buy stocks? I would say if you separate all stocks into this... Names like Microsoft and Google on one side, and then the rest of them as cyclicals. Look closely at what energy and specifically, great oil companies are in that second group. Why? The important thing is, in unlike any other most areas of the market and the economy, uh, there's a price pressure underneath. The energy market has this wonderful tailwind now with the dollar down with the price of oil down and with the d- the need to drive and go places and do things, that's now starting a really strong ramp. Yeah. So you have great, you have this wonderful opportunity that all consumers can benefit from getting more out of less. And then you have this phenomenon, which in the United States is a perfect example. It's true in China as well. We're already driving as though we're close to a fully uh, recovered economy. People are driving, they're getting out again, and they, the person Behind the wheel requires a lot more energy than the person jumping on a train or in a plane. So you're going to see more demand than people expect. Still, the last thing... In the, sure, okay. go ahead. Go ahead. No, the, it's the last, the most important thing is We will lose a fair amount of oil productive capacity in the world. You just can't shut in 10 million barrels a day and instantly recover any of that. We'll get a good portion of it back. But we've impaired global oil production now in a way that will require new oil being found and brought to market starting next year. You put all of that together, you have an exciting, fundamental background for this really unique cyclical sector.
2: Sure. No oil at 50 sounds crazy, which is why I like it. You know, most things that come true start by sounding crazy. I mean, if anyone said oil was going to go to minus 30, it it would have sounded crazy. And and yet that happened, too. Curious, as you mentioned about gasoline demand and how quickly it's come back. What happens when people start flying again um, and aren't using so much gasoline on these road trips or maybe RV trips and that sort of thing?
8: Yeah. I mean, Phil just pointed out that, you know, we're, we're just bumping along the bottom with, uh, with uh, jet. But think about jet fuel and, and flying in general. Uh, the actual passenger side is a small, small fraction of people getting behind the wheel in a car. And if you, for example, just take the big cities like Chicago and New York and take down the amount of uh, traffic with respect to buses and trains, all of that goes to the cars. And again, you're using vastly much more, a great deal more energy to drive somebody somewhere than you would uh, putting them on a train. There's just so much more potential demand for people getting back to work yeah. behind the wheel of a car.
2: It's true. And it, we think about, you know, at what point are those cities not going to be able to handle all the, the car flow? But we're not quite there yet. You do have a couple of uh, individual names, Jerry, that you think would also be good bets in this environment. Tell me about them.
8: Yeah, so... The whole industry has now gone through this revolution. Uh, We were trying to make it form fit a $50 oil price with lots of competing sources of oil. Now those competing sources of oil are gone, and these companies that are are back, the ones that will survive, they will be vastly better companies than they were at $50 the last time. First of all, competition's going away. Uh, There are names like Chesapeake and others that are gone. They won't be around. They won't be sources of competition. Uh, Secondly, the names like Conoco and EOG and Hess, those were great companies before. Now they've become supercharged. Uh, You'll see in in, uh, Conoco, they'll return probably 50% or more of the value of of their shares to the shareholder in a $50 oil price world just in the next three to five years. Uh, EOG, which is the leader in extraction technology and and separates themselves from the other shale producers, watch how well they do from an efficiency standpoint coming out of this. And then finally, go go ahead. ahead. Nope, nope, you get the, the final word here. Okay, the final name is Hess. People were not paying much attention, but they've made a world-class discovery with Exxon, and they dominate that, and those barrels are just starting to get on the market. It's the cheapest oil anyone's found in the last 10 years, and you can buy it in that stock today. So you have three great ways of playing a very interesting cyclical and secular turn.
2: Awesome. Jerry, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Always bring in the heat. Thanks. Jerry Castellini of Castle Ark Management. Coming up, just as the restaurant industry was starting to see green shoots, will concerns about a jump in COVID cases lead to another pullback? A look at the names that could be hit the hardest. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Stay with us on The Exchange. Welcome back to the exchange. Hertz, which filed for bankruptcy just last month, is now asking a judge to allow it to potentially sell up to a billion dollars worth of new shares. Why? Because the stock has been on a massive tear as retail investors are bidding up small and bankrupt names. Hertz is up 10% this week and 682% from its 52-week low. Of course, it's still down about 85% from its 52-week high when it was up at $20, but it did go as high as $6 in frenetic trading this week before settling back now to about 2 bucks. Its market cap has dwindled from almost $3 billion to $78 billion at, uh, million at the very lows, but it's now climbed back to almost $450 million. This may be the first time ever that a bankrupt company issues equity at the start of its Chapter 11 proceedings if the judge does allow Hertz to proceed.
6: Now over to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue. Thank you so much, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The CDC is warning the U.S. may need to reinstitute lockdown measures similar to the ones used in March if COVID-19 cases dramatically rise again. Starting in July of 2021, college student athletes in Florida will be able to receive financial compensation for their name, image or likeness. Florida becoming the first state to allow this. California has a similar bill set to take effect in 2023. North Korea accusing the U.S. of making a, quote, empty promise and being hell bent on increasing tensions as it marks the second anniversary of the first meeting between President Donald Trump and leader Kim Jong Un. And sources telling CNBC the New York attorney general's office is interviewing Amazon workers who say they were retaliated against for speaking out about unsafe working conditions during the pandemic. For more on that investigation, you can go to CNBC.com. You are up to date. Kelly, I'll see you again in an hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera there. Ahead on The Exchange, a rare and exclusive interview with a private
2: equity legend, Henry Kravis, the co-chair and co-CEO of KKR, joins us to talk about his recent investments, the state of the industry, and his push for more diversity on corporate boards. Plus, could the recent pickup in market volatility actually be a good thing? Why one portfolio manager says these drops should make investors feel better? That's coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been anything but a ho-hum day in the markets, although that's how it looks this afternoon. After an early morning comeback, stocks are way off their highs. The Dow was up more than 800 points at the highs. It's up 210 right now, an 810 skein. It's still the best performer of the three major averages, and all three are on track for their biggest weekly declines in 12 weeks because of that huge sell-off yesterday. So again, the worst week in 12 weeks still today, a little bit of a rebound. Dow up 207, S&P up 15, NASDAQ up 32. Let's look at the sectors where the financials are are making a comeback today after two terrible sessions where they were down about 10-12 percent, today adding 1.7 percent. The materials, those cyclical areas, also coming back a little bit today as well. And the utilities are selling off by about half a percent. That's the weakest sector. Some names on the move include Lululemon, which has just been an outperformer, uh, but then got hurt after its latest earnings report. It's down 4 percent today following its first earnings miss in three years. We'll continue to keep an eye on that stock. But again, year to date, still very strong. Tesla shares are also down after it was downgraded to underway from equal weight at Morgan Stanley, which cited several factors, including their need for more capital. Now, remember, Tesla crossed above $1,000 this week. Today, it's down about 4 percent to 934. And PVH is lower after saying it expects revenue to decline more than expected for the current quarter. The shares are down almost 10 percent today. So again, reflecting the fact that a lot of these investors have no clue what the demand picture is going to look like for a lot of these companies still. Now, a 2019 report from Black Enterprise found that more than a third of S&P 500 companies had no black board members at all. As the conversation about diversity and inclusion in the workplace heats up amid social unrest, what are American companies doing to combat these issues? Seema Modi joins me
10: now with a closer look. Seema? Kelly, that's right. Wall Street is hiring more people of color, but analysis of corporate boards in the financial services sector shows fewer than 17% of slots are held by minorities. Investment firms like KKR are partnering with organizations like Sponsors for Educational Opportunity that get low-income students through college, while its careers program places minority graduates in banks and private equity. To discuss the path forward for Wall Street, I'm joined by KKR co-CEO Henry Kravis and SEO President William Goodlow. It's great to see you both. And Henry, I'll kick the conversation off with you. Thank you first for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on CNBC.
11: Uh, nice to be here. Thank you.
10: Corporate America is trying to understand how to address the lack of diversity in the workplace. You've been a big supporter of SEO, chair of the board since 2014. How have the recent events influenced the way you recruit minority talent, Henry?
11: Well, we've worked at uh, recruiting uh, minority talent for a long time. This isn't something that just happened uh, two weeks ago. We've been at this for a long time. Uh, We set up an inclusion and diversity council. Probably five or six years ago, we hired a chief uh, diversity officer uh, in uh, 2015, and uh, so we've been we've been working at it. One of the things that we found that actually works well is partnering with uh, organizations like uh, SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, uh, TWIGO is another one, and uh, and then uh, some black. Uh, run uh, private equity firms uh like harlem capital and uh, so that's how we've we've gone about it It build the partnerships, try to raise uh, uh the size of the funnel uh so that it's uh it's wider it's deeper, and uh, try to find people both at the upper uh echelon in executive roles for us as well as coming at it from uh, the bottom end in hiring. Uh, minorities right out of college and out of uh, graduate schools.
10: And William, what exactly does the SEO program entail? How do you prepare minority graduates and get them placed at top Wall Street firms?
12: So SEO was founded in 1963 at the height of the civil rights movement. And it's ironic that we are relevant and necessary today we have multiple programs, but in terms of the program you ask about, our career program, uh, we start recruiting students as early as freshman year in college. And we work with them to prepare them to be competitive candidates for summer internships that lead to full-time jobs. And typically these internships are between uh, junior and sophomore year of college. Intense hard skill training, the technical skills, things like modeling, Excel, PowerPoint, uh, and the soft skills, how to conduct themselves in these highly competitive and coveted uh, industries. Uh, 80% of our summer interns receive full-time offers at the end of the summer of their after their junior year uh, of college. And through the years, we have over 13,000 alumni, and we've launched SEO programs uh, around the world, in Africa, in London, China, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're really proud, not just of... Uh, placing so many blacks and Hispanics in these coveted roles, but the way they've advanced through the years. Over half right. of our board of directors is comprised of SEO alumni. Right.
10: Henry at KKR, so you just, manage I, over $200 billion dollars in I, assets under investment. Go ahead.
11: I'm sorry. I was just going to add one thing to what William said, because it's, I think it's critical. Uh, what, we find is that uh, corporations that we're dealing with uh, all of them want diverse candidates Uh, but where they have the problem many times is finding diverse candidates who come in that are trained that are that are ready for work understand how to model understand uh, even how how to dress um, and and how to uh, relate in a corporate uh, environment That uh, is something that SEO does. We take them through uh, a very intense uh, training program so that when they're finished with that and they start their job in a corporation, they have a leg up and are ready to move forward.
10: Yeah, Henry, roles like organizations like SEO play an important role in getting more people of color in the door. But how do we create more advancement programs to see uh, more diverse leadership in the C-suite and in the boardroom?
11: Well, look, it has to start at the top. You know, if it's not a priority for a CEO, uh, it's not going to happen, in my view. Uh, At KKR, uh, George Roberts and I were the uh, co-CEOs. Uh, We've made it a priority, and and it's been a priority for a while. We we want diversity of gender, ethnicity, and thought. And you get better uh, thinking, you get better uh, working environment if you have that diversity. So it must start at the top. So uh, a few years ago, we made a decision that we were going to have a program where our U.S. corporations uh, had to have at least uh, uh, 80% of our US uh, corporations that we control, and we have companies we don't control, we have a lot that we do control, that we wanted to have at least two or more uh, diverse directors on their boards. And uh, that's over 41 companies uh, in total. And what I'm really happy to to say is that the first quarter of this year, uh, we were uh, able to meet that goal and we obviously hope we will continue forward on that and work at it. But it starts at the board level, it starts at the CEO level, and then you have to get everybody in the organization to buy in. There's another piece that I think is very important, and we've gone at this uh, in the same way at KKR, and that is to have training uh, for uh, uh, unconscious bias training. This is really important. You know, all of us don't realize that there is bias uh, in, in how we operate, how we think day-to-day. Day. So we've had two, two different sessions with this, training all of our executives at KKR to overcome and to be aware of unconscious uh, bias, and, and that has helped us uh, as well. And I'm really happy to say that today we have four uh, SEO alums uh, that are
6: mm-hmm.
11: uh, partners at KKR today, and uh, we have a number of other uh, uh, black executives that are uh, uh, in the managing director or director uh, roles at KKR.
10: Uh, it's an important point to make, especially as Wall Street really takes a serious look, uh, not just about inclusive, inclusivity, but at the C-suite and at the board level. Henry, we'll leave the conversation there. Uh, thank you for joining us today. And William, we really appreciate you both joining us today to discuss uh, this important matter. Kelly, back to you.
2: Seema, thank you. We we, we really do appreciate it. Seema Modi uh, with that great conversation there. Going to take a quick break. Still ahead, hospital stocks are under pressure as COVID-19 cases continue to spike in several states. We're going to have a closer look at the names that are getting hit particularly hard on this. You can see those declines. Also, the former Darden CEO joins us to talk about the future for the restaurant industry and who's best positioned to adjust to changes in a post-COVID world. Stay with us. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Remember those big gains earlier? Well, the Nasdaq just went negative. So it's up a point right now, but it just dipped into the red to give up its uh, uh, gains on the session. The Dow is still hanging on to about a half percent gain. We're only up 132. The S&P is up six. Remember, this was after a six percent down day for the Dow yesterday. Uh, Not exactly a comeback. We'll continue to keep an eye on it, though. Meantime, it's been a rough week for the hospital stocks. The sector facing pressure as COVID-19 cases continue to spike in several states. Let's check in with Bertha Coombs for more. Bertha.
13: Yeah, it's been a very rough week for hospital stocks, Kelly. You know, they've been on a tear in March and really bounced. But take a look at the declines this week. Big concern is the fact that some of the momentum they've been seeing could now be reversed. Uh, Raymond James, in fact, talking about how they have seen a rebound in states like Florida, key states for a lot of these hospital operators, HCA, Tenet Health, United, uh, Universal Health, all up 70 percent or more in terms of their volumes up from where they were before those states reopened in late April. But as we're seeing spikes in states like Florida and in Texas and Arizona, which are big markets for these hospital makers, the concern is that we might see some of these hospitals have to pare back on that elective surgery. And even if they're not ordered to shut down elective surgeries, the concern really is about patients Because that's one of the big questions in all of this uh, uh, that patients might be scared to come back if they feel that there are too many uh, risks with them being exposed to COVID in the hospital, Kelly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was interesting, too, to talk not just about the short term pressure they're facing from uh, the coronavirus itself, but also if we have higher unemployment in the long run, that could hurt their profit margins.
13: Yeah. In fact, UBS cut estimates on a number of the hospital players yesterday, looking at that very issue, looking ahead to 2021. The Fed saying they think we'll end up with unemployment about 9.2 percent. That will shift the mix. If you take a look at how much they get per hospital stay on average, uh, people on commercial uh, insurance, insurance from their employers it's about 25,000 on average for someone on an exchange plan which is still a private insurance plan about 20,000 when you go to medicaid which is the safety net program that number falls by a third just under around uh, 7,500 or so. So that would be a very difficult payer
2: mix as more people might be forced onto Medicaid. Wow, that is a huge difference. That's incredible. Bertha, thanks very much. Definitely speaks to some of the weakness we're seeing Bertha Coombs with the latest on the hospitals there. Coming up, one market strategist says that following the big sell-off, she actually feels better about the market. Why, she'll explain next. And states like Texas, Arizona, and Florida have seen a rise in COVID cases. In fact, Houston may be getting close to reimposing stay-at-home orders. We'll look at what that could mean for the restaurant stock. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange with the S&P negative now. The Nasdaq composite down by a third of 1% and the Dow hanging on to just a 23-point gain today. We're on pace for our worst week in 12. For more on these markets, I'm joined by Michael Schumacher, senior macro strategist at Wells Fargo Securities, and Kim Forrest as chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, we've been teasing that the declines make you feel better about the market. Does that hold if we're down again today?
14: um kind of uh you know we don't want to see it drop too far too fast but it did feel like it had gotten ahead of itself especially with the kind of um the the rise in what i would consider the sillier stocks like people buying the bankrupt hertz uh rental Mm -hmm. stock i don't really understand that but They're doing it. And, you know, sort of piling into airlines and cruise lines because they're cheap. Well, cheap is as cheap does. And let's see who survives. And I think that's the 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 stuff that made me really nervous, right? Yes. But um, it feels like we're getting back to thinking about what these cash flows from companies are going to look like, and maybe we did get ahead of ourselves.
2: Michael, does it all come back to the Fed? Because a lot of the retail traders who are in this market now basically think as long as the Fed has the backstop, there's no way we can see the market really collapse.
1: I'd say it's fair to really make the comment, Kelly, that the Fed and the other central banks have driven the big rally in risk assets over the last few months. Now, the move in the last couple of days, is that due to the FOMC? Is it due to people saying, hey, things have gone really well, maybe it's time to cut some risk down? Probably a bit of both, frankly. And also the, the comments from Chairman Powell that the recovery is likely to be prolonged pretty slow. To some degree, he dismissed the really tremendous employment report last month. So I'd say a combination of factors, but the Fed's got to get a fair amount of credit and maybe a little bit of blame as well.
2: Michael, it almost sounds like you also think that Chair Powell needs to smile now and then.
1: (laughs) Well, it was a blowout jobs report. So at least being a little bit more upbeat about that was probably would have been a good thing. But still, the Fed has put into place so many programs over the last few months. And generally, they've done their job. They've provided a nice circuit breaker, if you will, given a tremendous amount of support to the credit markets. Interestingly, if you look at Treasury yields, we hear all this, this talk about equities going wild over the last few months. Treasury yields have done nothing. Actually, they're down. If you mark the 10-year Treasury today, it's about 9 or 10 basis points lower in the yield than it was when the S&P hit its bottom back on March 23rd. So wow. The Fed really, I would say, has well locked in rates. It's an amazing comment, frankly.
2: Kim, let me bring you back in for those who say, OK, well, maybe I don't need to be in the silly stocks. What are some stocks that I can feel comfortable being in, even if they do go down another 15 or 20 percent because the market you know, slips on another banana peel?
14: Sure. Well, um, I think you need to uh, understand that uh, the name or the companies that you're going to buy have to have a longer-term story. Um, What I'm looking at is technology, because it is the thing that gives companies and people productivity. And something that intrigues me is 5G. It's going to be a long rollout. Um, We don't really know what the killer app is yet, But we know that the service providers are certainly going to start laying the groundwork and putting the technology out there. And so semiconductors that play into that field, that's one area. And, um, you know, all of the uh, sort of software providers around that 5G uh, uh, ecosphere, too.
2: All right. I know VF Corp., like you say, entirely different story. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you said a brand builder can maintain enthusiasm for its brands could pay off uh, with the yep. North Face brand in time. And that should resonate with some of the younger folks. Thank you both. Kim Forrest, Michael Schumacher Thank for you. your thoughts today. As the market has given up all of its gains from earlier, the Dow uh, almost negative. It's up 11 points right now. S&P and NASDAQ are lower. Coming up with a renewed spike in COVID cases in several states, we're going to look at the impact on restaurant stocks and the names that could be particularly vulnerable. Ahead on Power Lunch, Atlanta Falcons minority owner and former NFL running back Warrick Dunn weighs in on the push for social justice, on finding solutions and the NFL admitting it was wrong. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Welcome back with the down now lower by 29 points, having given up all of its gains today and now on track for the worst week in 12. The restaurant sector has been hit hard by the pandemic as well. And there are certain stocks within the sector that are taking the brunt of the losses here. Let's check in for Kate uh, for more with Kate Rogers. Hi, Kate.
15: Hi, Kelly. Well, some names are holding up better than others. Those that have seen their business hold steady and even grow during this time include names like Chipotle, Domino's, Papa John's, and Wingstop. Those are the four top performers in the sector this year. These companies, remember, all have robust carryout and delivery platforms as well as partnerships to cater to consumer preferences in the new normal. But Starbucks, it closed down around 8% yesterday, down 14% year-to-date. Earlier this week, it said it projects a $3 billion loss in Q3 due to COVID. And casual names like Bloomin' Brands, excuse me, the parent of Outback, Brinker, Chili's parent company, and Darden, Olive Garden's parent, all down between 30 and 50% for the year. The casual sector has been struggling more than others and had been before COVID began to spread. Major chain transaction data, though, continues to improve, according to NPD Group, overall down 18% year-on-year. Year. That's actually a 3% increase from the week prior. Full service chain transactions fell by 37%, quick service by 16%. Kelly, will have to see what this new spike in cases means for that data moving forward.
2: Back over to you. All right, Kate. Thank you, Kate Rogers. Casual dining and other small businesses taking a big hit during the pandemic. Get this, especially black-owned businesses. A study this week from the National Bureau of Economic Research shows the number of black business owners has plummeted from over a million in February to just 640,000 in April. That's a loss of 41%. Joining me now to discuss the impact of COVID on restaurants and the black community is Clarence Otis, the former CEO of Darden Restaurants and the lead director on Verizon's board. Mr. Otis, it's great to have you here.
16: Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon.
2: What would your message be to those who who have been put out of business by this pandemic, especially the black community?
16: Well, I think uh, it is not unexpected. The African-American community really consists primarily of independent restaurant owners and independent full-service restaurants are bearing the brunt of this. Some of the chains clearly have been adversely affected, but they're better able uh, to withstand this kind of damage than independent So we're going to see a much more significant effect on independence, a lot more closures. And that's where the majority of African-Americans happen to be positioned uh, who are in the full service dining industry.
2: Yeah. No, it's we've also talked about the unemployment rate overall and how often the gains come at the very end of expansions uh, for minority communities. And then they're the first to get laid off, as we've seen as well, uh, when things turn down. Is there something you think society could be doing better on that front?
16: Well, I think there are a whole host of things that society can do better on a number of fronts. I mean, to me, it really is encouraging to see how quickly, really astonishing to see how quickly a mindset that's needed change for a long, long time has in fact changed. And so I think as I look at corporate America in general, before we get to restaurants specifically, I think there are a lot of things that companies can do. Uh, it starts with removing a couple of things that, in my opinion, have been barriers to success. So one of those is this whole notion of colorblindness. If you're colorblind in a world uh, in which people, how people are treated really depends on race, then you're not colorblind, you're really socially blind. So we've got to get past that. I do think as well, the whole notion of diversity has become a barrier. Diversity is critical, it's critical. It's critically important to have a heterogeneous, a heterogeneous organization, a heterogeneous community, so we can bring together different perspectives and that way get better solutions and live better lives. But diversity can't crowd out an additional focus on the fact that race matters in America and that racism has to be addressed in a parallel way with uh, diversity. In my view, a lot of African-Americans have become very skeptical about diversity and inclusion. They feel it's been embraced as a way to avoid the tougher, uh, more uncomfortable questions around race and racism. And so to that extent, diversity and inclusion has been a barrier as well. Yeah. So there are a lot of things companies can do, but moving past those first two barriers I think are some important initial steps.
2: Yes, and it's a much bigger conversation uh, than we, you know, right now uh, should dig into. But I do have one more question for you, mm-hmm. which is, you know, given your experience at Darden and at Verizon, can you give just a couple of examples of what companies can do here uh, to try to, you know, help on those counts?
16: Well, I think uh, there are so many of them. but one is really to understand the worker experience and how that experience differs for the black worker all the things that they bring to the job and then really look at understand all of your people systems your hiring orientation training performance management promotion systems and what changes are needed to make those systems serve black employees better the same thing needs to happen in terms of looking at the black customer experience and then In terms of really helping black businesses and allowing them to get past this immature stage where they're vulnerable, Mm -hmm. like the restaurant owners, we need to think about investing in our supply chains uh, in some real new and innovative ways. What PayPal announced yesterday in terms of setting up a investment fund, a venture fund focused on uh, African-American businesses, I think is something that other companies need to look at.
2: Yeah, and that was a huge, uh, huge investment, $500 million, I believe. Uh, Clarence Otis, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. A lot of thoughts on what companies could do here. And that's how we'll close out The Exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time,
10: same place.